new uh, sermon series. And, and one of the reasons why we wanted to, to do this series is, is realistically in our culture today, it is very, very evident that there are a lot of spiritual people. There are a lot of religious people. And, and there's even some of these folks who actually believe in Jesus, at least in a way, right? So what we want to hopefully do is it, one of the things that we'll discover and what we probably have seen as well and what we'll see from this, this example from this church is a lot of these folks who do believe in quote-unquote Jesus, they believe in Jesus plus. They add to Jesus. They say we need to do this or we need to do that in addition to and the Bible is very clear, as you know. So one of the things we'll do is we'll, we'll not only see that it's, it's evident that this is not only true today, but in this letter to the Colossians, we'll see that this is actually true of even some churches early on, particularly in Paul's day. So as stated, we are starting this brand new series, and we're pretty excited about it. It's a fantastic book. If you're familiar with it, you'll hopefully agree. Um, you'll find this book, if you have your, your Bibles, go ahead and find it now. It's usually the best to have it ready to go. Um, you'll find it in between Philippians and right before 1 Thessalonians. If you get to 2 Thessalonians, you've got to go back a couple. In these opening verses, what you'll see this morning as we start this series, is you'll see that the, this church was a church in, in a city in a church called Colossae. And it was written by Paul and Timothy, as Nate pointed out earlier this week. And in these opening verses, we see that Paul actually, later in the book, you'll see that Paul actually never visited this church. It wasn't one of the churches that Paul actually planted. Uh, but what we see here is instead that he receives a report from the pastor of that church named Epaphras. And this church was likely founded sometime during that third missionary journey. And if you go back to the book of Acts, we can really see a lot of his journeys. Probably in that, that 19th and 20th chapter of, of Acts is likely when this church was founded. And the city of Colossae was actually a small town. And in this small town, it was actually between uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And one of the things that we see uh, later on in chapter 4 is this, this letter was actually not only sent to Colossae, but it was supposed to be passed on to Laodicea. And if that church name sounds familiar, that is one of the churches that was written to in Revelation. And this letter is also a companion letter to both Ephesians and Philemon. And uh, we'll kind of see some of the connections there as well. And here's the neat thing about Ephesians in contrast to Colossians. Ephesians was written really to build up the church. It was written really about the church and the unity within the church. What we see here with, uh, with uh, Colossians, it was really written about lifting up Jesus. So we see those two sides there in these two companion letters. Paul wrote to this church to encourage them and appoint them back to Christ as the final, final authority, and we'll see here soon, too, that that final authority is because we want to make sure that he wanted to make sure that they were focused on God and Jesus' teachings, more so some of these false teachings that we've seen. Uh, Warren Wiersbe is a great Bible teacher, and he, uh, he, he kind of sums up the state of this church and this town this way. He says that all kinds of philosophies mingled in this cosmopolitan area and religious hucksters abounded. I really grabbed that quote because I wanted to use the word hucksters today. There was a large Jewish colony in Colossae, and there was also a, a constant influx of new ideas and doctrines from the East. It was a fertile ground for religious speculation and heresies. That's how he described this city. He also adds these words. He says, false teaching, 
was a deceptive combination of many things. Jewish legalism, oriental philosophy, pagan astrology, mysticism, asceticism, and even a touch of, uh, of Christianity. Sound like a recipe for disaster if you ask me. See, one of the dangers that we see here in this book and in this church in the city of Colossae is what we see here is that they believed in Christ, but they also added to Christ, and it was really due to the culture that was around them. So in this letter, we'll see a number of different themes that kind of pop out, but when Pastor Pat and I were planning this series, we talked a little bit about this idea of rooted. And we really feel that, the, you know, this idea of rooted, and it comes directly from this book, hopefully, right? And that's actually in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, which we'll get to in several weeks. But I want you to kind of keep these verses in mind as we go through this entire series. And this is what it reads. Therefore, you have received, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, and rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding and thanksgiving, right? So rooted and built up in him, right? As you were taught from the beginning. So in the literal sense, just like we talked about with the kids earlier this morning, something that is deeply rooted is fixed in one position. It's immobile. It's unable to move. And for a person, this would mean that, there, there's a, that they have a deeply rooted convictions. They have deeply rooted passions and beliefs and, 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 and feelings. And they believe something and feel something so strongly and, and they are very unlikely to change. And that's really what we want to accomplish. So a friend of mine recently posted some pictures of kind of what this idea of, of, of unrooting looks like. And these were uh, from a storm less than two weeks ago in Claremont, California. Hopefully you can see these okay. But if you do see them here, you'll see that these trees, these big, giant, old trees are just completely lifted out of the ground. The kind of damage that's involved in that is, is, is gruesome, right? And so wherever this was, you know, whatever neighborhood this was, there was these, these large trees just uprooted everywhere. The roots were not strong enough to keep them from all these storms and these high winds that was going on at that time. And can't that happen today with Christians? Can't that happen to you and I today where these winds and these storms, they come through and we can completely be uprooted like these large trees. And that's why when we're hopefully in this sermon series, we'll see that it's important that we not only have these roots, these deeply founded roots, uh, but also because that's going to allow us to get through the winds and the storms. But we also want to make sure that we do return to Jesus and our growth in him and, his, and the relationship we have in him is, is also built up. So with all this background in mind, I want to go ahead and begin reading. We're going to cover this first section in the first chapter, and we'll start here in verse 1. Verse 1 reads this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood it, the, the grace of the God. Just as you would learn it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known 
to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What an incredible opening to this book. Here's the main idea that I want to unpack this morning. Being rooted in Christ produces Christians who walk in a manner worthy of Christ so that they can bear fruit. I know it's a lot, but I think all those points are important. So being rooted in Christ produces Christians who walk in a manner worthy of Christ so that they can bear fruit. I uh, finished a book last week called uh, Letters to the Church from Francis Chan. Maybe you're familiar with that book. It's a fantastic book. In the fifth chapter, he writes these words. He says, If everyone who graduated from Harvard ended up working at a jack-in-the-box, who in their right mind would spend the fortune to send their kids there? Harvard is supposed to produce professionals ready to compete for high-level positions. In the same way, Paul expected the church to produce courageous, hardworking saints who were unfazed by the false teaching and able to resist temptation. That was Paul's heart. That was his desire. And, of course, what we see here from Chan, his primary point with this, this section was that the church is meant to not only exist but to also produce. So the picture that we see when we go to the, the, you know, kind of the beginning portion of this section in verses 3 through 8, one of the pictures we see here is that Paul, who, uh, remember, is actually in prison while he writes this letter and, and four others or three others. This is one of the prison epistles that we know. And, and so he was in prison. He gets a visit from Epaphras. And, and Epaphras tells him that in this report, he's like, hey, okay, this church is doing really well, but there's also some underlying issues. And I think it was really neat, and one of the things that we spoke about on Monday when we, we met with the men, is that I love this section three through eight because it actually gives us kind of a nice little synopsis of what a healthy, successful, good church looks like, right? In today's culture, a, a successful church has, you know, millions of followers on social media, and they, they have, you know, 15 services, and they have, you know, countless members, and, you know, all of these things. But this is really what what Paul said, this is a good church. This is a good church that's rooted. They just need a little bit of love, a little bit of help. And a few things that he mentions here, if you've noticed, is, is number one, their faith in Christ, right? That was, that was primary for him. They all, he also pointed out their love for all of the saints. Also pointed out their hope, the hope they had in their future home in heaven, in their destination. And then the hearing of the word, and what's really neat here, we'll touch on this here in just a moment, is that the word, the gospel was, was preached and spoken about enough where it was bearing fruit. It was drawing people to the Lord. Sounds like they were doing great. But as we noticed and noted just a few moments ago, they were also being led astray because of these, this false teaching. So the truth was being muddled with all this other false teaching. 
And as we go along in this series, we'll kind of see what some of those things look like. They'll, they'll be uncovered as we go through this series. But this morning, what I want to do is focus on this walk, this walk that we see, and it's really illustrated in verse 10. Verse 10 reads, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. If you really just look at that and meditate on it, and I encourage that you do that this week, this, is, this should be the goal of every Christ follower. Every Christ follower, this should be the goal for that. Wearsby, again, he said this about this, this idea. He says, in the Christian life, knowledge and obedience go together. There's no separation between learning and living. There's no separation between learning and living. You see, a Christian who's rooted in Christ applies these principles and applies this truth in all areas of their life. And we'll use this verse and, of course, the rest of the verses to answer one question this morning. How do we walk in a manner worthy of Christ? That's what I want to figure out this morning. How do we walk in a manner worthy of Christ? Here, here's a confession I'm about to make, all right? Don't judge me for this, especially you, Gerald. I don't like to walk. I don't like walking, particularly for exercise. Now, hear me for a minute. Hear me just for a minute. When I walk, it, it's to go somewhere, right? So if I take a 30-minute walk around my neighborhood, what happens? At the end of that 30 minutes, I'm right back where I started from, and I have two sore knees, and I'm heavy breathing. It's just not a fun experience for me, right? And that, that's kind of, you know, jokingly to, to, to talk through this idea of walking, right? So we're in our journey, right? I'm sure each of us have heard this, you know, this life that we live is a journey. But more specifically, life we live with Christ is a journey. And what happens in journeys? What happens when we take road trips? What happens when, when we just go through life? There's hills. There's valleys. There's storms. There's droughts. There's all these things that happen along the way. But I don't know about you, but when we experience these storms with Jesus, despite what happens and what happens in our lives and how it happens and, and all the pain and hurt and suffering and frustration that comes along with it, we can look forward to that hope that we have in our final destination, which is eternity in Christ Jesus as a Christian. And I think that's what this passage teaches us as well. It tells us to do that you know, despite the difficulties that we need to be walking alongside Jesus in those storms and in those valleys and in those mountains. So again, how do we do that? So the very first thing that we need to make sure, and again, this should not be a surprise to anybody in this room. The very first thing, the primary thing is we need to make the word of God primary in our lives. We make the word of God primary in our lives. You'll hear that from us hopefully every single week or at least most of the time primary is the word of God, the gospel. Look back again at verses 5 and 6. I can't remember if I put him on this slide or not. Verses 5 and 6 read again, because of the hope laid for you in heaven, so that was the hope they had, of this you have heard before the word of God and truth, the, the gospel, right? We have heard from before, right? So he, Paul is pointing them back to what they've already learned. Which has come to you as indeed the whole word, world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, and he's talking specifically of the word of God, as it also did among you. 
since the day that you have heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So he's bringing them back. He's like, forget about what you're hearing now. Remember what you've heard from the very beginning. So Paul's making it very clear that the word of God is primary, not only in growth, but also in making disciples. And secondarily, we see that in verse 7, Epaphras taught the word of God well. So Epaphras brought the word of God to these people, and, and he was kind of making sure that that was primary. So how does one know that the word of God is being taught well? I think that's an interesting question, right? It first means that we must know the word of God ourselves, right? If I'm standing here and saying something on Sunday and it doesn't align with Scripture, I expect you to let me know, right? And, and I can speak for Pat as well on that. Knowing the word of God allows us to know him better. That's what we see in this passage as well. A few minutes ago, I, talk, I talked about Wiersbein. He said that, that this idea of learning is, is the same and goes hand in hand with the Christian walk. And that's why we must know God in order to do that. Knowing God, for example, is not like knowing the roster of your favorite team or, or knowing you know, the, the, you know, the cast of your favorite TV show. That's not what knowing God is like. It, it, to know God, we have our full faith in him. And that's really accomplished through the careful study of his word, through fellowship, and through prayer. So recall that this church in Colossae was facing these false teachers, again, who did Jesus plus. They were adding to Jesus. So when one is rooted in the foundation of the scriptures, we do have that discernment that we need to separate the truth from the lie. And we'll see that if you read 1 John, you'll see that there very clearly. So knowing him helps us to walk in a manner that's worthy of Christ. The second thing we need to do is have a life filled and full and live a life of prayer and thanksgiving. That's really what we see in that first section from Paul, is, is, is this prayer from him, this loving prayer, and this, thanks, this prayer that was full of thanksgiving. He was rooted in prayer and thanksgiving in his life and in his ministry. And not just here in this letter, but also in all of his letters. Read all of the intros to his letters. You'll see that there. His attitude wasn't just when he was penning these letters, because if you look at verse 3, what does he say? always. This was his attitude always. So prayer and thanksgiving, it also produces an attitude of joy, right? When we can have joy in all things. Next thing we see here is we need to pray for strength. This is another way we can accomplish this. We can pray for strength. This doesn't always mean physical strength, but sometimes that helps. Right? This doesn't always mean physical strength. And this is the kind of strength that, that we see if you look at the very first verse of David's Psalm 27, which reads this way, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Right? We see that in the life of David. That word stronghold, we can also uh, translate that as refuge. Right? So it's a refuge, it's a safe haven, it's a safe place, and that's the source of strength that, that Paul's talking about. And that source of strength helps us to also pray for this next thing. And it's to pray and receive endurance and patience with joy. So if you've been with us at all this year, you know we just last week finished a, a sermon series called Dangerous Prayers. 
Now, if there's not a dangerous prayer behind me here, I don't know what is. Praying for patience? Are you kidding me, Ryan? Praying for patience is a dangerous prayer, isn't it? It, it, it can lead to waiting. It can lead to disappointments. It can lead to difficulties. We can go on and on. It's not an easy prayer. But I read this earlier this week, and I thought it was interesting to pass on to you all. When we avoid praying for patience, what we're actually doing is we're not remembering God's patience for us. Right? God waited 17 years for this guy. And for some of you, it may have been even longer. Right? 2 Peter 3.9 is one of my favorite verses, and it reads this way, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patiently waiting for those who have not repented, who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. He's been patiently waiting for that response. And again, I know I waited a long time for me, and I know there's, there's similar people to that as well. And this endurance alludes, this idea of endurance alludes to this perseverance under extreme pressure, right? When you look at how that word is used in the, in the Scripture, it's a, it's a perseverance under extreme pressure, right? Again, we've said this before too. Living the Christian life is not an easy one. There are a lot of difficulties along the way. And it's also used to describe this finishing and this completion of something, right? It's that that finishing line, that completion. So when we have endurance and we have patience, we have joy, we're able to remain on task fully rooted in Jesus. And then the last thing is to bear fruit. We are to bear fruit. Jesus spoke in depth about this in in the beginning portion of of John chapter 15. Verse 8, he says this. He says, by this, and he's talking about fruit, bearing fruit, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Right? Did you see that? So Jesus here is stating that bearing fruit is a proof of our faith. And we see the bro- his brother James speak about that as well. And, and maybe you haven't been in the church very long, and, and this idea of bearing fruit, and while it's, it's, it's very, fairly used out in the, in the culture and the world, uh, but it's also a very churchy phrase, isn't it? I like this definition that I found earlier this week. Bearing fruit is a phrase that's used to describe the outward actions that result from the inward condition of a person's heart. Right? An inward per- so if you really think about it, and, and you've seen this in the scriptures too, that bearing fruit, you can bear good fruit, and you can also bear bad fruit. So obviously, the bearing fruit here is, is, is the good fruit, is the fruit that's worthy of Jesus. It's that, that fruit that we see in Galatians 5. So as we draw to a close, I want to also address kind of the other side of, of, the, of the group, right? So there might be some of you here today or listening online that are not Christians, and, and again, this, this was written to a group of Christians, and that's why it's been heavily focused on the Christian walk. So and it, but what we see here is that being rooted in, in, in Christ allows us to have this walk that's, that's worthy of Christ so that they can bear fruit. 
And this is obviously very essential, but what it happens for those of us who don't follow Jesus, how does this apply to you all? How does that apply to them? I like that, that, that those last several verses that we see here in, uh, in this section. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For the Christian, we can look at that and be reminded of the things that we can be thankful for. Right? We can be thankful for him because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to his kingdom. We have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Right? In verse 12, thanks be to God, the Father who has qualified you. Wow. These verses remind us again of how thankful we should be as Christians, of people who are living under Christ. And my message to those who don't believe, you can see here that it's so much better living for and under Christ than it is without. And I love this idea of being qualified. That's a neat word and a neat description. Came across uh, an article. I kept coming over and over again, you know, as I'm searching for things. I kept coming to this. I'm like, fine, I'll use it, right? I think God was poking at me. William McDonald said this about being qualified. He says, when God saves someone, he instantly bestows on that person fitness for heaven. That fitness is Christ. Nothing can improve on that. Not even a long life of obedience and service here on earth makes a person more fit for heaven in the day he was saved. Our title to glory is found in his blood. As a matter of fact, I think in, in, in the King James Version of uh, chapter uh, verse 14, it adds that in his blood in that section there. I think in between um, redemption and forgiveness. So it adds that piece in there, that in his blood, it's super important. So apart from God, uh, Christ, we're unqualified. Apart from Christ, we're unqualified. We're not worthy to be in his presence. Why? Because we're not holy. Verse 14 reminds us that Christians are forgiven and therefore qualified. David Guzik, one of my favorite pastors, he he speaks these words on this word forgiveness. He says it's an ancient Greek word, aphesis, which most literally rendered ascending away. Our sin and guilt are sent away because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Isn't that neat? God has sent away our sins, right? So, you know, kids are misbehaving and we send them to the rooms, get peace, joy, right? But God has sent away our sins. He sent them away. And that is reserved for those who are under Christ, Part of that, again, it comes with suffering, though. I, I quoted Francis Chan earlier. He actually, he dedicated an entire chapter of that book that I read last week on living and suffering in Christ. And it's a very powerful chapter. And he told a story of this church leader in China, and he said that they have these, these five pillars for their church. And one of those pillars was suffering for Christ with joy. Can you imagine that as a church pillar? That's an incredible and another dangerous prayer. But he also went on to speak these words, and this is really important. He says, we need to take time and meditate on the impossibility of the cross. The almighty, 
all-knowing, all-powerful God who spoke the universe into being, sent his son to die a criminal's death so we can be with him forever. So we can be with him forever. That's that hope that we talked about earlier. But Chan also helps us to remember, and he also warns us and says this. He says, we lose everything, reputation, comforts, and possessions, but count all that bunch of trash. He says, oh, that's trash. Our, our, our comforts, our reputation, our, all that is trash in comparison. And he says, because it's all worthless compared to knowing Christ. You know, I've had a lot of jobs over the past 20 years. I can remember one job that caused me so much anxiety and so much stress. And this is a first world suffering problem. I'll admit that right off the bat. But I remember coming home one day, and I'm in a really, really bad place. And there were really two things that kind of got me out of this funk. One was my wife coming alongside of me and reminding me that I needed to surrender. Yes, dear. Yeah, you're right, again. Then, too, it was me actually doing it. It was me surrendering to God. And I can remember sitting on this ottoman that was right inside of our bedroom. And I remember just sitting there and praying, tears running down my ugly face. And I'm an ugly crier, too, by the way. Crying, praying. And then I had, once I was done, I just stopped and I, I found, I surrender the song and I played it. And I'm just sitting there worshiping. That was what I needed. I needed to say, enough of all this nonsense. It's temporary. And I literally knew it was temporary at the time. And even though the presence of my wife was, was spot on, that's what I needed in the moment so she can kick me in the rear end and, and direct me back to God, it was the surrendering to God that was really what I needed. And that was what helped me to recover in that moment. And that's what living under Christ can produce. That's what living under Christ can produce. I know a lot of us feel this way. Maybe today you're feeling like, you know what, I don't, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough, right? In my marriage, as a father, as a grandparent, as a husband or wife, as a child, as a student, so on and so forth. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe, maybe you just don't know where to start. And maybe today you need to make a decision to, to follow Jesus. Here's where I would encourage you to start. Start with prayer. Right? Prayer is that, that, that avenue and that vehicle we have to commune with God. Start with thanksgiving. What do we have what do we have that we could be thankful for? And maybe this isn't a start more so than a do, but then start that walk. Start walking alongside Jesus, discovering him through his word, discovering him in prayer. Come alongside of other Christians who can lift you up and build you up. Maybe you need to do that today. Let's pray. Father, it, it's, this journey is not easy, and we, um, we acknowledge that, and we understand that, and we understand that, that being rooted in your son Jesus and, and what we've learned and what we understand from the scriptures is primary, 
and it's necessary, and it's needed, it's essential, and so forth. God, help us as, as we, we ponder over and, and hopefully uh, consider these words that we've read here in Colossians, and help us to, to walk alongside of you and, and bear fruit as a proof of our faith. So help us to do that, God, and speak to each heart here today and those who are listening online. Help us to do that in a way that's worthy of you, Lord, and worthy of your son Jesus and the work he did for us on the cross. Help us to do that today. Help us do that when we leave this room and as we go about our week and we go about all the, um, the hills and valleys and the storms and the droughts that we face along the way. Help us to, to continue to come back to you and to surrender to you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name.